Hear it? My question is, who are you wearing? Who are you wearing? I realize there might be some fashionistas in here, but predominantly, right, this is Henry County. Most of you like, get that fashion nonsense out of here. Get that out of here. I'm, I'm with you. My wife and I have a, a running joke in our house. Uh, we'll talk about, you know, decorations and stuff. Mostly her and I just listen and smile. And she'll tell me things like, this is so in, or this is on trend. And every time she tells me that, I kind of want to throw up a little bit in my mouth. Like, come on. <laughs> come on, right? I get it. So the question this morning, who are you wearing, right? Nobody's got Gucci on in here this morning, but not so fast. Not so fast. How many of you own something from Carhartt in here this morning? Mm-hmm. Yup. I wore this specifically to make this point today. Carhartt, right? Any Mossy Oak people out there? Right? It's like the, the Walmart version of Carhartt. It's still good. Don't hate on it. Some of y'all are hating on it. It's inexpensive. I love Walmart. Right? I am a person of Walmart. You've seen the videos. I'm one of them, right? Got the sweatpants on and everything. Well, North Face, Columbia, Nike. There's some Under Armour folks out here. I know. Wrangler. Any Brett Favre fans? <laughs> I guess not. Just me. Right? Right? I'm confident not many of you, probably nobody in here is wearing Gucci. If you are, more power to you. Right? But being in rural northwest Ohio... All of us are wearing some brand, and some brands we prefer more than others, right? And if it's not a particular brand, then it's, it's a style. Like most of the men in here from LC, pretty sure you all shop at the same boot store. <laughs> well, I've seen your boots. They all look the same. That's fine. More, I love it. It's awesome. You like boots. That's good. That's awesome, right? So when I say, who are you wearing, and you turn your nose up, I'll just say, not so fast. Not so fast. Like it or not, we may not be city slickers, but all of us dress how we dress for certain reasons. We dress to impress our people, right? The people that we care what they think. It might not be the fashion people in New York City, but we dress to impress our people. We dress to fit in. We dress to stand out. Most of us, whether we'll admit it or not, dress to make a statement, whether it's a particular brand or style, all of us, what we wear, we wear for, for particular reasons. And while this is true of fashion, right? Some of us want to make fashion statements, even if we turn our nose up at it, we do. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that the Lord Jesus invites us not to be so concerned about the statement we make with our fashion, but rather we should be more concerned about the statement we make with our faith. See what I did there? should be more concerned about the statement we make with our faith. And so allow me to restate the title of today's sermon again. Who are you wearing? Who are you wearing? In a moment, I'd like to show you in our text. We'll be in Genesis 17. It's going to take us a minute to get there because we've got some contextual work to do. In a moment, I'd like to show you a man who God used to make not an incredible fashion statement, but an incredible faith statement in the book of Genesis. The man's name is Abram. Abram. Abram, whose name is about to be changed to Abraham in our text this morning. 
he is often referred to quite correctly in Jewish, Muslim, and Christian circles as the father of faith. Now with a name like that, a nickname like the father of faith, some of you who may not be super familiar with the story of Abram, you might be thinking, oh, this guy's a goody two-shoes. He must be really stellar, right? But Abram isn't as flawless of a figure as you might imagine. Instead, his faith journey, which is outlined for us in chapters 11 through 25 of the book of Genesis, his faith journey is a very human account of what faith looks like. Abram's journey is one of faithfulness, to be sure. He does grow and grow and grow more into a faithful person. But his story also contains monumental failures and moments of faltering as well. Now, if you were with us last week, Wes did a great job unpacking the Noahic covenant for us. That was a promise from God to all people after the flood, right? Noah's Ark, that whole story. The Noahic covenant is a promise from God to all people that he would never again judge the entire world through a worldwide flood. This morning, our focus is going to be on what scholars will call the Abrahamic covenant. And that gets outlined for us really in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It's represented on our slide as the little stars in the corner because the promise at one point, God says, look up at the stars. You see all those, Abraham? That's how many your descendants are going to be. Essentially, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, which you can go and read later. And I would encourage you, if you've never sat down and read Genesis 11 through 25, the story of Abraham, you should do it because it's crazy. You will be super encouraged. But in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God shows up and kind of just plucks Abraham and Sarai, Abram and Sarai, plucks them out of, out of nowhere. No name. We just get introduced to them. They're a married couple, but the author of the text tells us that they are childless. And that's important. God shows up to this married but childless couple and essentially says, follow me. I'll lead you to a new land and I will make you into a great people who bless the whole world. That's the promise, in a nutshell, the Abrahamic covenant. It's God's promise to give Abram a people, a place, and an eternal possession, which we'll see in just a few minutes. Again, it's stated in Genesis 12 generally, and then the author takes us on this wild and thrilling ride of faith to see how God is going to make good on this promise. How is this promise and Abram's faith going to be worked out in his life? And let me just say, it is not what good Christian church-going folks might expect, right? So you see, sometimes when we read the Bible or we think about faith, we have this mistaken idea. We, we think that, man, if God shows up and he gives us a promise, and if we believe that promise, then everything's just going to be smooth sailing, right? I got God on my side. Christian victory, Right? We just think everything, I like to say, it's, it's all going to be rainbows and unicorns. And I can't tell you not only how unhelpful that kind of thinking is, it's also incredibly naive. And all of us, I think, would agree. Any of us who've, led, who've lived any amount of life in this world would acknowledge, like, even if you love Jesus, life kind of stinks sometimes. It's difficult. Even when we know the promises of God and, and have God on our side and are walking with the Lord, life can still be incredibly difficult. 
You see, church, the idea that if you just believe in Jesus and if you just believe in him enough and and have enough faith, then everything will be smooth sailing. Your life will be carefree and easy and God will fix all of your your bad circumstances, right? He'll just fix all of them. If you believe enough, if you have enough faith. Not only is that naive, it's also not true. It's really unhelpful. That's not the picture that we're given in the scriptures. As we shall see in the life of Abram, God shows up, he makes this beautiful promise, and it's awesome. But there is nothing easy about living with faith, living life on this earth. If you're expecting to believe in Jesus and then for him to just undo all of your bad, bad circumstances immediately, you're going to be disappointed. Because he doesn't just save us and then take us right up into heaven. I wish he would, honestly. He doesn't, though. He wants us to walk with him through the ups and downs, the hills and valleys of life. He promises to be enough in those moments, but not necessarily to make everything just smooth sailing. We see this played out in the life of Abram. Again, in Genesis 12, we're told that God shows up. He makes this beautiful promise about blessing Abram. And if you're a reader of the Bible, you're thinking, all right, like smooth sailing, right? And then almost immediately, we're told in the text, a famine strikes. Famine strikes in Genesis 12, and Abram has to move. Him and his wife, they become refugees in a foreign land. Refugees in a foreign land. Abram becomes a refugee with a smoking hot wife. That's what it says. Go read Genesis. It's in there. Right? It's not exactly said that way, but Genesis 12, 11. It says that Sarai was a beautiful woman. Levi's translation, she was smoking, right? (laughs) Even at the ripe old old age of 75, this girl, she is capital F-I-T, fit, right? (laughs) She's smoking. And you might be thinking, Levi, why are you, like, come on, this is inappropriate for church. We're good church. What are you talking about, right? This is church. Why does this matter? You're just including this for laughs? No, I'm not. The author of Genesis thinks this is important for us to know. Why? Why is this important? Why does he want us to know that Abraham and Sarai are in a foreign land? And oh, by the way, Sarah's beautiful. She's like, wow, man, 75-year-old, you don't look a day over like 35. Goodness, right? Why does he want us to know this? Because God makes a promise to this barren couple about how he's going to make them into a nation. And now we we find Abram and Sarah, we find them in a foreign land as immigrants in a position of weakness and vulnerability. And while we don't know a whole lot about kings and pharaohs as a people, right? That's not our culture. We do know a thing or two about powerful men. And what do pretty much all powerful men have in common, especially when they ain't acting very Christian? They like beautiful women. They like to prey on beautiful women. And so we as a reader are left to wonder as we read Genesis, as my four-year-old used to say when we read stories and you know, like we get to a tense spot, oh no, what's going to happen? Oh no, what's going to happen? Right? Is, God, is God's promise going to be thwarted? Sarah's going to get swiped by this pharaoh and brought into a harem and yeah, okay, we're going to have a child, but it's by completely human means and Abraham has nothing to do with it. That's a problem. That's a problem based on what God has said and the promise that he's given. That's a real big problem. 
And how is a father of faith going to respond when faced with a threat like this? Right? Abram, father of faith. You would expect him to say something like, listen, babe, I know you're beautiful. Man, so beautiful, right? Smoking. And so to protect you, I want you to tell everyone that you're my wife and that if they mess with you, I will visit the wrath of God upon them. Right? It's like, yes, that there's a man, a man of faith. That is not what Abram does. If only this father of faith had more faith. Do you know what he says and said? Oh, hey, babe, you are very attractive. Pharaoh, he's going to notice. So here's what I want you to do. Tell him you're my sister so he won't kill me. He's not really concerned about his wife or her protection. He's concerned about himself and saving his own skin. What a model of faith. See, as you can read in the story of Genesis, as Abram goes on this faith journey, all kinds of threats come along to God's promise. Famine, pharaohs, there's a bunch of people that like attack and carry off people, and there's people pursuing him. Even himself and his wife, they get in the way of God's promise sometimes. Despite all of these challenges... God consistently demonstrates his might and his faithfulness. He rescues Abram and Sarai from Pharaoh, from pursuers, and most notably, God rescues Abram and Sarai from themselves. Can we just stop and give thanks to the Lord for the promise that he gives to us, that he shows us? He is so committed to each and every one of us that he will save us from ourselves at times if we need it. Even with all this, though, As the story goes on, time continues to tick. And yeah, God protects his people, right? But time continues to tick. Abram and Sarah, they ain't getting any younger. And so as time goes by, we get to a a spot in Genesis 15 where this father of faith, he starts to have some doubts in the promise of God a little bit, right? His faith begins to waver. And it's understandable It's really understandable. In Genesis 12, we're told that when God first shows up on the scene and he gives this promise to Abram, he's 75 years old. 75. You know any 75-year-old couples having babies right now? Right? You know any? No. Right? The only diapers 75-year-olds are buying are for their grandchildren. Don't be nasty. Come on. You thought I was going to say depends. You guys are horrible. Get your, be kind. Right? 75-year-olds. They don't have babies. That's not a thing. Yes, God makes an amazing promise, but as time continues to tick away, even as God protects his people, we're still left with the question, where's the baby? Where's the baby? This is the question... Abram asks in Genesis 15. And God does something incredible, incredibly beautiful in Genesis 15. It's an amazing story. Go read it for yourself later. I'll summarize it for you. This crazy thing happens where God, he's having a conversation with Abram. Abram's like, dude, I'm not getting any younger. Where's this kid? And he shows up and, he, and God says, all right, here's what I want you to do. 
He orchestrates this peculiar event where he says, Abram, I want you to go slaughter some animals. I want you to cut them half. And I want you to make a hallway of sacrifice. Animals, carcasses on each side, right? See, unlike modern contracts, ancient covenants involved walking through this path together, a path of sacrifice. And it was meant to symbolize a commitment to the terms, right? Rather than signing on the dotted line like we do with contracts, they'd outline the covenant. Here's what you need to do. Here's what I'm going to do. And to agree to this, we're going to kill some animals. We're going to split them in half. We're going to make a hallway of sacrifice. And then the two of us together are going to walk down this hallway of sacrifice, symbolizing, making a statement, may we become like these dead car if either one of us fails to uphold our end of the covenant. It's beautiful. I tried to get Rachel to let me do this at our wedding. (laughs) Can you imagine a bride and groom walking down an aisle full of dead animals on either side? That's crazy. But it might make us take our vows a little bit more seriously. Anyways... God has Abe set this all up, and that's not surprising. This is a covenant ceremony. This was a very common practice in their culture. This is what they do, right? God has him set up the hallway of sacrifice. He outlines the terms. He says, listen, Abe, I'm going to give you a promise. I'm, get, I'm promising to you a people, a nation, a place, and an eternal possession. That's not surprising. What is surprising, it's weird. We're told that God puts Abram to sleep before they walk through this hallway of sacrifice. And then God himself walks through the hallway of sacrifice alone, which is a foreshadow of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. God is essentially saying, listen, to Abram and all of his descendants after him who would come in faith to the family of God. By faith, come into the family of God. God is saying to the family of faith, listen, if either me or you fail to keep up our end of the covenant, I promise that I will become the sacrifice for you. I will make myself like these dead carcasses for you. Is that not one of the most beautiful things you've ever heard? It's amazing. It'll preach, as we pastors like to say. And in response to this, we're told in Genesis 15.6, one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. And I'm serious. This is one of the most pivotal verses in all of the Bible. Genesis 15.6. Write it down, underline it. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And now, imagine we're watching a movie here, okay? So we've got this up and down, this craziness. Abraham's making a mess of things. Him and Sarah, they're getting old. He's crying out to God. God, we still need this baby. Where's this at? And then God comes up, and he does this awesome, strange covenant ceremony. And Abraham, like, wakes up out of his sleep. Covenant's reaffirmed. And if we're watching a movie... The soundtrack, the, the lights kind of dim down, and then the soundtrack kind of comes up, and you kind of hear the, the, the smooth jazz, right? The R&B music. The Marvin Gaye comes on, right? It's like, all right. God's going to reaffirm his, his promise, like Abram and Sarah. It's like, let's go. Let's, let's have this child, okay? That's what you would expect. But 
It's not what happens in Genesis. Genesis 16.1. After God comes and says, I am going to make good on this promise. You will have a child through your wife, Sarah. Genesis 16.1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne no children. She's still, she's still barren. But, man, she didn't stop there. But, she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar, right? Ooh, and the plot thickens, right? Sarah, she comes to her husband, she says, Hey, Abe, you told me everything that God just said, that's amazing. I'm like, I'm 90, man, like, this ain't happening. Like, here, take, take my slave girl, Right? She's got baby fever in the worst way. And the best way that she can come up with is like, well, I I guess it's going to have to happen through one of our slaves. And Abram, being a father of faith, he says, what? That's crazy talk, Sarah. Let's believe God. Let's, Let's trust the Lord. Let's wait on his timing, right? You're still beautiful. I'm happy just to, like, right, me and you. We just need each other. You would expect that, but you would be wrong. You'd be wrong. That's what we'd expect from a guy with the nickname of Father and Faith. But he says, instead, he says, Sarah, I'm here to please. Where's the slave girl? Remember when I said we see God save this couple from themselves multiple times? They get in the way a lot. Abram has faith, and that faith is credited to him as righteousness. But Abram doesn't always make great faith statements with how he lives. He doesn't. So much so that if you to go read this story in Genesis, with, with Genesis 15 and the symbolism of God essentially saying, listen, like I'm going to make this covenant with you, but I'm going to carry the full weight of it on my shoulders. Right? That's the symbolism of Genesis 15. That co- coupled with Abram and Sarah's consistent failures over and over and over again. They fail to have faith. God has to save them from themselves. As we're reading this story, we're walking through it together, we're left wondering, does it even matter how these people live? Does God care at all? Right? Does it matter who they are wearing or what kind of statements they make with their faith and their lives? If God is just going to pick these people at his prerogative and bring about whatever he promises, no matter what, does it even matter how they live? If Jesus is just going to save us if we say a prayer and like get baptized, does it even matter how we live? To say it another way, does it even matter whose brand we wear? It's a great question. Enter Genesis 17, our text for this morning. Let's read it. Genesis 17, 1. When Abram was 90 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. All right, let's pause there for a second. What does this seem to suggest, given the context we've just unpacked together? It's almost like God is saying, Hey, saw what you did with Hagar. Saw the offspring that came out of that, whatever that was, that mess of you trying to help me make good on my promise. Right? That's what, that's what happens. He sleeps with Hagar. Ishmael is born. Here in Genesis 17.1, it's almost like God shows up and he says, Listen, bro, I saw what you did there. 
I'm almighty God. I see everything. I saw what you did there. And dude, I, I need you to walk with me faithfully. I need you to walk before me blamelessly. The inference, I think, that the author of Genesis wants us to see is, what you just did there, Abram, it wasn't faithful, dude. Wasn't faithful to your wife, wasn't faithful to me and my promise, wasn't blameless. Again, oh no, what's gonna happen? Right? Abram's about to wet himself, I think. Right? God shows up and like puts him in his place. Thankfully, if you've read scripture, you'll know our God is a God who is faithful even when we are not. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. And rather than smite Abram and pick someone else, our loving God reaffirms the covenant. Look at it with me. Verse 2. I'm almighty God, he says. I need you to walk before me faithfully and blamelessly. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and I will greatly increase your number. He reaffirms the covenant. He graciously reminds him once again. Hey, I still love you. My promise still stands. Walk with me faithfully. And Abram, I believe, sufficiently rebuked, corrected, disciplined. Verse 3, he falls face first before the Lord. Verse 3, Abram fell face down. Good choice, Abraham. That's a good word for us. When in doubt, choose humility. Accept your wrongdoing, humbly own your mistakes, and throw yourself face down at the feet of mercy in front of the cross. Abram fell face down and God said to him, here's what I'm going to do. This is my part of this covenant. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be called Abraham. For I have made you into a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will, make the nation, I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. You see, verses 4 through 8 here, we see what God promises to do himself. God reiterates the promise of a people, and he does so by signifying a name change to Abram. I don't want you to miss this. Remember, we're asking the question, does it matter what kind of statement my faith makes? Does it matter who I'm wearing? I want you to see here that God changes one of the most important identifying features about a person in regards to Abram. Not his clothes, but his name. His name. See, Abram means high father, but Abraham means high father of multitudes. God changes Abraham's core identity. He comes and he says, listen, you are not just a high father. You are a high father of multitudes, even though you can't see it right now. Even though it doesn't feel true, this is the truth. This is who you are. You are mine, and because you belong to me, I will make good on my promise to make you a father of nations. This is who you are. God reaffirms the promise of a people, and he re-identifies Abram 
so that everyone around him will know and see this man has been marked. He belongs to the king of the universe. Along with that, God promises faithfulness. He says, your life will display the fruit of my blessing. This is a big deal for us, church. It's one thing to say you love Jesus. It's another thing to say you love Jesus and then your, your life to bear the fruit of that out. You're not going to do this perfectly, but as you grow in Jesus, he will produce the fruit of belief in you. you say, what is fruit? Fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. You will grow increasingly more in those things. God promises him a people, a place, and an eternal possession. And the eternal possession is not riches. That's part of it. In Egypt, he says, you're going to be in slavery for 400 years, and then I'm going to bring you out with all the Egyptian stuff. You are going to plunder the Egyptians right, with possessions. That's not what he's talking about here. He compares it to the promised land, but then look at how he finishes what the covenant is, the eternal possession. What does he promise to give? Himself. He promises to give himself to these people. This is what God will do, friends. He promises a people, a place, and most importantly, an eternal possession of himself as their God. I will give myself as an everlasting possession, he says. I will be their God. This is what God will do. And it's beautiful. But our question remains. From Genesis 15 and God's treatment of Abram's failure, we're still left to wonder, well, does it even matter then how we live? Right? Abram believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. He promised to be faithful even when we're faithless, to carry the heavy load of the covenant and become the sacrifice if we fail. But does it even matter how we live, how we represent him in our daily lives? Does it matter whose brand we wear out in the world or what kind of statement our faith makes? Well, look at verse 9 with me. After God finishes telling Abram what he's going to do, he shifts and now he tells Abraham, this is what you must do. Verse 9, then God said to Abraham, as for you, talking to you now, here's, here's your end of the deal. You must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are, to undergo, you, are, you are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or brought, bought with your money, they are to be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now catch this. Here's what God is saying. This is my, my translation of what he has just said. My summary. God is saying to Abram and all of the community represented under him, wear my brand. 
wear my brand. You can think of this in regards to clothing, or even better, you can think of it in regards to a cattle brand, which signifies ownership. God says, put this sign on your body to help you remember to live in light of the covenant, to live in light of whose you are, whose you belong to. This sign is for everyone, he says. It's the Gentiles in your camp, the slaves in your camp, your daughters and women in your camp. Mark your men to wear this sign. But the sign is to be a reminder for the entire community that all under the men in the community, even the slaves, are a part of God's family. Wear this brand, he says. Wear this sign. And here's the deal with sign, church. Here's the significance of a sign, right? Signs are not the important things in and of themselves. You would never go to a Grand Canyon sign and stop and say, wow, we made it, let's take pictures. <laughs> that's, that's ridiculous, right? Signs are significant in what they point us to. This sign of the covenant was not the thing God made them for. It was not the promise itself. It was to remind them of the promise, to live in light of the reality of what the promise actually was. And, just in case anyone would miss this, say, well, what about the women, right? What about the women? Are they included? Yes, they are included under the men in the, in the community. It's a fair question, right? The sign of the covenant is to be displayed on men, but it was for all. And just in case anyone would miss this, I, feel, I believe the Lord put Genesis 17, 15 in there. He says, this is for Sarah as well, folks. God also said to Abram, as for Sarah, or Sarai, your wife, you're no longer to call her Sarai, but her name will be Sarah. He marks her. He gives her a new identity. I will bless her and will surely give her a son. I'll bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. And I love the next part. The next part of this chapter, we get a glimpse of what it looks like to wear our faith outwardly. What does it look like? Again, does it mean all rainbows and unicorns, smooth sailing, like everything's just going to clearly, like all, all of a sudden make sense to us? We're just supposed to get on board and be like, all right, God, I'm in. I believe everything you say and everything's clear, and so let's roll. Well, look at what Abraham says. Verse 17. Abraham fell face down, and he laughed. And he said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might come under your blessing. This is so good. We're told in Romans that Abraham, his laugh, it's not a laugh of disbelief. It's not a laugh of disbelief in God's promise here. But the dude's a hundred years old, right? He's having trouble wrapping his mind around how this is going to work. And so naturally, he laughs. Not in disbelief, but at the absurdity of it all. And he attempts to reason with God. God, I, I'm not disbelieving. I think you can make a nation out of me, but like, Ishmael? Like, that seems like the most logical choice. And I'm so thankful for how God treats him in this moment. 
He doesn't like clobber him and be like, bro, you need to have more faith. Like, what are you laughing for? He doesn't smack him around, right? I actually, when I picture this story, I see the Lord kind of getting a twinkle in his eye and chuckling right along with him and just being like, bro, isn't this wild? Like, <laughs> you're a hundred. This is crazy town, right? Like, I think like he puts his arm around, he's like, they have a laugh at the absurdity of what God is going to do. And God doesn't clobber him. He's like, listen, like the whole Ishmael and Hagar thing, like I love you, not my plan, but because I love you, I I will bless Ishmael. Like I'll make a nation out of him as well, but you need to know he is not the child of the promise. And this is like the major break between Islam and Christianity. Islam thinks Ishmael is the child of the promise and they need to go read Genesis because the Lord God Almighty shows up and he says, listen, that was a mistake. Shouldn't have done that, but my grace is sufficient. I'll cover you. He is not the child of the promise. I'll bless him. You're still going to have a son and you need to name him Isaac, which means, so good, may he smile upon you. Right? It's like the whole laughing thing. God's like, oh, listen, I know this is crazy. I want you to laugh about this moment. When you think about how old you are and the fact that I blessed you and Sarah with a child, I want, I want you to know that my smile is just like I'm beaming at you and my face is upon you. I'm lifting up the light of my countenance upon you. I'm going to give you peace because this is, this is my child that I promised. Know this. Verse 19, then God says to him, yes. <laughs> and he chuckles, yes. You and your wife Sarah will bear a son. You will call him Isaac. Isaac, which means my face will smile upon you. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after you. And as for Ishmael, I've heard you. I'll surely bless him. I'll make him fruitful. I'll greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But, Islam, but, Muslim, my covenant I will establish with Isaac. Jesus, the Savior, will come through Isaac whom Sarah will bear to you this time next year. And when he'd finished speaking, Abraham went up from him. And then what? And then what? Abram does what he always does. Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. And that righteous belief worked itself out in obedience. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael, And all those who were born into his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and he circumcised them, had God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were born, or were both circumcised on that very day, and every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Who are you wearing, church? I hope you noticed that this brand, this mark of circumcision, is relatively vague here. There's not a mention of any moral stipulation that God desires for his people to live by. That's actually going to get fleshed out in the Mosaic Covenant, which we'll look at next week. But right here, right now, the chief concern from God is that his people know whose they are and that they live in light of that. He says, here, take my brand. Let the world know that you are mine. I'll change your name, your identity, and I need you to live with my brand on you. Live like you belong to me. Live in light of my covenant promise. 
Who are you wearing, church? Whose brand is on you? Baptism has become for the Christian what circumcision was for the Israelite. It's a sign that points to the new covenant, which we'll look at a couple weeks from now. Suffice it to say, Jesus did indeed become the sacrifice alluded to in Genesis 15, thousands of years before he, he promised it. He did become that sacrifice. And because of this, even when all other, when, when all other of God's people failed, when we fail, Jesus keeps up, keeps up our end of the bargain for us. He's made it possible for us to live in light of the promise. The promise that if you belong to God, there's a people that you belong to. There's a place that's being prepared for you in heaven. And there's a God who has made himself available to you to become your everlasting possession. You and I would each do well to follow in the footsteps of this father of faith. Believe God. Wear his brand. Remember his promise. And live markedly different than the world in light of it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the grace on display in this man called Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Thank you, Lord, for continually pursuing them, for continually covering their lives with grace, for protecting them from rulers, from politicians, from people that would pursue them and desire evil for them. Thank you for protecting them from themselves. I pray, Father, that you would help us to live in light of the promise, that we would not take for granted that you'll just make everything in our lives smooth sailing, but that you will protect us and that you will help us to remember whose we are. I pray, Father, that we would know you as our eternal possession personally, that we would know the smile that you wear on your face towards us. I pray the prayer that you commanded Moses to pray over the people. He said, Lord, what should I pray for my people? And the Father in heaven said, here, this is my heart for my people. Pray this over them. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you. May his face always be smiling at you. May he grant you peace and restore rest to your soul. In Jesus' most holy name,